Well, what a joy to be together again. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, it is great to see your smiling faces, <laughs> which I can't really see, but, uh, but I'm grateful to God you're here, and we are here to experience God's grace as we listen to the Word together. What a joy to take communion together again. Man, it, uh, it really just is a, I've been anticipating it all week long, and so what a privilege and a, and a joy it is. We are in the book of Ecclesiastes, as you're well aware. We are in a series, and we're calling this Finding God in a Fallen World. Finding God in a Fallen World. And today, we are in chapter 6 and 7. So we're going to be starting in chapter 6, and as I read, I'm going to be skipping a verse here and there just because it's a long passage and so I'll try to keep you apprised of where I am in the passage uh, but follow along with me open up your Bible or your uh, app or whatever it is you're using and join me today we're going to be talking about growing through God's testing growing through God's testing Let's read together chapter 6, verse 1. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun that lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Jump down to verse 6. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the same place, one place? Verse 7. All the toil of a man is for his mouth, and yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over a fool? And what does a poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute one stronger than he. Jump down to the last part of verse 12 or verse, uh, uh, excuse me, um, yeah, verse 12. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Now, chapter 7 and verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of his death better than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is an evil of man, this is the end of mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Down to verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, where were the former days? 
Why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see under the sun, who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And then in the day of adversity, consider. God has made one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. And then all the way down to the last part of verse 18. The one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Let's pray. Father, we do need your grace to understand. We do need wisdom as we approach your word because your word is lively. It's good. It's quick. It comes and it affects our heart and changes us. So we're asking you to come and make your word real to us. Strengthen us, Father. Make it come alive. Open our eyes to hear things that will help us live our lives for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The preacher here is laying out a principle. Now, the the great thing about studying God's Word is that you can study it and you can take this one passage and come up with a dozen sermons. And I feel like I have something here that I think will be helpful for us today. The preacher is talking about prosperity and adversity. And he's basically saying this, prosperity is not necessarily a blessing. Adversity is not necessarily a curse. And God is behind both of them. God is behind both. So I want to start with a Biblical story is an illustration as we begin today. You know the story, or you may remember the story of Hezekiah in the Bible. So Hezekiah was one of the kings, one of the great kings, who was a very good king. And in 2 Kings 20, it tells his story. And you may remember that in the story in 2 Kings there, Hezekiah was really at the peak of his life, at the peak of his reign, and he gets sick. And he gets so sick that the prophet Isaiah comes and says, you're going to die. Put your house in order, you're going to die. And Hezekiah is broken before the Lord. He weeps, he he cries out to God, he cries out to God for mercy. And the Bible says God provided mercy. Came, sent Isaiah back to say, listen, you're going to get 15 more years of life. And in Isaiah chapter 38, Isaiah recounts this story and he recounts Hezekiah saying this, but what could I say for he himself sent this sickness? Now I will walk humbly throughout my years because of the anguish I have felt. Lord, your discipline is good, for it leads to life and health. You restore my health. You allow me to live. Yes, this anguish was good for me, for you have rescued me from death and forgiven all my sins. Hezekiah understood something about adversity. He said he himself sent this. He understood the sickness came from God. He wasn't sitting there rebuking the sickness as if somehow some strange thing. He understood God allowed and brought this into his life. He responded with humility and understanding. He said, I will walk humbly. He acknowledged this is the Lord's discipline in his life. 
and he acknowledged God's rescue and forgiveness in the midst of it. But interestingly enough, sometime after this, it's not clear in the scriptures, but sometime after this, Hezekiah experiences the challenge of prosperity. And he has become wealthy beyond what most kings in Israel have ever experienced other than maybe Solomon. He's got all these goods and all this armament and the, 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 the city and Judah is at its peak. And the Babylonians send some emissaries to him. And when the emissaries come, they come because they've heard of this great miracle that's happened in his life. And when they come, he just is full of himself and he shows them everything. He shows them his storehouses. He shows them everything that's going on in his kingdom. He shows them his armories, everything. And Isaiah comes to him and basically rebukes him and said, Now this whole everything that you have is going into captivity. He, he, he put his trust in that moment, in things that weren't worthwhile. And it's interesting, in Second Chronicles 32, this is what God, in a sense, says about this. Also in the matters of the princes of Babylon who have been sent to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God, listen to this, God left him to himself in order to know what was in his heart. Isn't that an interesting phrase? God left him to himself just to let him go and do whatever he's going to do. And he did. And what comes out of his heart? We see where Hezekiah's trust was. It was in his wealth. It was in his riches. I'm sure he was very impressed with himself. Probably not thinking this is a proud act at all. But God allowed him to see his heart. And he had to humble himself before God. That was, his benef- that was, that was who he was, though. He was willing to humble himself. What I see in this story is epitomized in this passage in Ecclesiastes. Prosperity is not necessarily a blessing. Adversity is not necessarily a curse. But just as Hezekiah said, God did them both. So let's look at this passage. First of all, prosperity is not necessarily a blessing. Wealth does not equal enjoyment or fulfillment. He's talking here in verse 1 about wealth and whether it's any good to have any wealth at all when you aren't even enjoying it, when you can't enjoy it. It says there in verse 2, God gives people wealth. It is God that does it. And the only place we get the ability to enjoy whatever it is that God gives us is that God gives us that enjoyment. We want to believe that natural blessings or or natural blessings Uh, Material things are a blessing, and adversity or poverty is some kind of curse. We've seen the example of a a young child in in a room full of toys, toys everywhere, and the little kid's up in the corner, and he's pouting because there's one thing that he doesn't have that he wants. Probably seen that in your own children from time to time. And then you can switch to another scene where there's a child in the backyard playing with a stick and having a great time and entertaining himself for hours. One has it all, no enjoyment. That's the kind of picture he's talking about here. And then he goes on to say, what if you had a long life and a hundred children? Well, (laughs) that you might consider a curse. I don't know. But anyway, he says, but in verse 2, but his soul is not satisfied. What good is it to have all of this and the soul not be satisfied? This is a theme in this book enjoying what God has given you. Don't judge 
by outward appearance. Many have money, nice things, great cars, but what good are they if they're ultimately miserable? What good is it to be able to, to go to the finest restaurants in town and you have no sense of smell or taste? Most, the people most envied by us are probably some of the most miserable. Better, he says here, to not even have been born. What a way to waste your life. Then he goes on to another topic. He says, what about work, toil? What, a, what if you work? You can work, he says, without wisdom. You're doing work, but you don't have wisdom. Especially, this is true, here in America, where it's easy to fall into the trap of becoming a, a workaholic, seeking to get ahead. If only you work harder, you'll be more happy toiling to provide for ourselves. This could provide... This could apply to a lot of different things. It could apply to money. It could apply to athletic victory, musical accomplishment, entertainment, relational desires, sexual desires, and on and on. Remaining unsatisfied even though having everything you could possibly want. Never being satisfied with what God has provided you. So how do you enjoy it? How do you enjoy what God has given you? Well, the New Testament says a big part of that joy comes in sharing, in giving. 2 Corinthians 8, 14, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need. Luke chapter 6, give and it shall be given to you. Matthew chapter 10, freely you have received, freely give. We have this perspective on our life and all the blessings that God has brought, prosperity that God has, you're never going to enjoy it until you get that perspective on life. Solomon addressed this wealth in chapter 5, verse 10. Those who love money will never... This is what the ten, chapter 5, verse 10 says. Those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. <laughs> so what good is wealth except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? Wealth doesn't satisfy. It becomes a trap for many people. The very thing you thought would solve your problem becomes a weight around your neck dragging you down. Prosperity is not necessarily a blessing. By chapter 5, verse 17 goes on to say, Throughout their lives they live under a cloud, frustrated, discouraged, and angry. The ESV puts it this way. Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness in much vexation, sickness, and anger. Do you remember the story of Scrooge, the Christmas carol? Yeah, watch it every year, right? Well, what happens in that story? This guy, the scene that, that always is amazing is he's sitting there. He gets, finally gets to his house. He sits in front of this little tiny fire that he barely has going. And he has got his little tray of, of a little bit of cheese and a little bread or something like that. And he's miserable. But what happens when you get to the end of the story? When you get to the end of the story, all of a sudden you see the real reality. It's end, and he's full of joy. Why is he full of joy? Because he's got a different perspective on his wealth, and he's out there giving it away. That's the difference. That's what life is, is like when you are able to have God's perspective on prosperity, but prosperity isn't necessarily a blessing. Author Jesse O'Neill calls this affluenza, an unhealthy relationship with money, being discontent, always wanting 
more. Philip Ryken, in his commentary, calls it acquisition without satisfaction. One time, a man asked J.D. Rockefeller this question. He asked him, how much money is enough? Rockefeller's answer, just a little bit more. (laughs) He could never get enough because what he needed at that moment was just a little bit more. The reality is God determines our status, he says in verse 10. So we're to stop struggling. It's been named already, he says. Stop struggling. Quit wasting your time struggling over what you do or don't have and enjoy what God has given you. The more you struggle, the more vain it feels. Get over it. Accept what this God has given you with joy and practice giving. Now, in chapter 7, verse 1, we go on to the challenge of adversity. Adversity is not necessarily a bad thing. So you've got prosperity, and it sounds great, but it's a real test. In fact, of the two tests that Hezekiah had that I talked about, the one that he failed was the test of prosperity. He blew it. He let pride take over. So he starts here with the reality of death. The reality of death gives us perspective to prosperity. It's the first level of adversity. It's one aspect of adversity that we all face all of our lives. You're going to die, and you don't know when. And our country right now is obsessed with death. Death's everywhere. It's, it's creeping among us at this very moment. It's all It's just natural that people are thinking about death. And so he says in chapter 7, verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointment. Well, what he's saying there, basically precious ointment, is he's talking about expensive things, nice things, things that you enjoy having, things that you want to have. If you had the choice, what would you choose? Would you choose the precious things or would you choose a good name? Would you want to go to your death with a good name or lots of money that you can't take with you anyway? Much wiser to live the simple life with a good name, to be a man of integrity, to respond to life in a way that glorifies God. Why? Because we all face death, that ultimate adversity. You will face death. If you've never if you've, if you've done these things and lived your life in a way that pursued wisdom, death is great gain. Paul said, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is what? It's gain. At that point in your life, when you have that perspective on what God has given you, it's to die is gain. I don't care what this life is all about. I only, want, I only care about Christ. Now he goes on to say, mourning is better than unsatisfied prosperity. It's better to be in the house of mourning than to be in a house full of feasting. It's better to do that. We go back to those two children. What, what's better, the one that, that is struggling to, with all the goods that they have and they can't even enjoy it, or the one that has got a little stick and happy with their life? The bottom line is, It's better. This whole idea of sadness and sorrow. He goes on to talk about sadness and sorrow. It eventually produces gladness. Listen, look at what he says. He says, sadness will eventually produce gladness. Now, 
that can be a shocking thought to think, really, in the face of sadness, you can experience sometimes your greatest gladness. What would you choose between empty laughter or the house of mourning, the comedy club or the funeral? Feasting and mourning are both from the hand of God, verse 2 indicates. If a man knows how to mourn, he's been able to thrive in that place of mourning. He'll be better able to and far more greatly appreciate the joy of laughter. If you don't know the wisdom that comes from mourning, no amount of laughter or merrymaking will satisfy the soul. He says, sorrow makes the heart glad. Learn how to mourn and you'll understand true joy. You Learn how to mourn. You go to a funeral, and what are you doing? Typically, you're evaluating your life. You're looking at your life. You're thinking, I'm still here alive. You're appreciating your life. There's something deeper going on there in that house of mourning. Now he goes on to another one from another form of adversity, and he calls it, he says, better to experience pain of rebuke than the song of fools. It's better to receive rebuke than to listen to the song of a a fool. Admonition and rebuke is better than encouragement and praise. Admonition and rebuke are forms of adversity. It's painful. We don't like it, do we? You don't like it. I don't like it. It feels bad. But they are life to the soul. Now, don't get me wrong. Encouragement is important. The Bible tells us we should encourage one another daily. We ought to be encouraging each other. That's the reality of what we are and what we're to be like. But he says the real test of one's character is how they deal with rebuke or correction. We've often said uh, as pastors over the years, you never really know when you're raising up leaders, you never really know what a leader is really going to be like until you've had to correct him. And in that moment... When you bring correction, anybody can receive encouragement. It's great. (laughs) But to receive correction and respond with humility and grace. Proverbs has much to say about it. I won't give them all, but here, I love this one. I used to dramatize this to my kids. He who loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates rebuke is stupid. Doesn't get much more obvious and powerful than that. To hate rebuke, to hate correction is stupid. I will turn at my reproof, Proverbs 1 says. Uh, if you turn at my reproof, he says, I will pour out my spirit on you. Proverbs 3, that he says, the Lord's, don't be despising the Lord's discipline or weary of his reproof. He goes on to say in chapter 6, the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. Correction is a way of life. Receiving correction, It's painful. It's adversity in a sense to your life. You feel adversarial at that time. But it's a wonderful joy and it's the way of life, the Bible says. He who rejects reproof leads others astray. Proverbs 13 says, whoever heeds reproof is honored. Proverbs 15 says, he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. Would you want adversity at that point or would you just want constant encouragement? Well, I would say, after listening to just a few scriptures I pulled out, I would be saying, 
uh, Lord, much as it, I don't like the pain and I don't like the discomfort, bring it on. Because it brings this kind of reality to my life. You want to be intelligent? You want to avoid stupidity? You want to be honored? Then love correction. Patience, he goes on to say. Patience. It's another form of adversity in the sense that we have to wait for something. He says patience comes from adversity. It's better than anger. Having to wait for things is hard. Patience worked into our lives as a challenge. But he says in verse 8 there in chapter 7, the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. The alternative is anger in our hearts, lodging in our hearts. Verse 9, anger lodges in the hearts of fools. Then he goes on to the adversity of discontentment. And he goes on to that phrase that says, where are the good old days? What happened to the good old days? You know, well, we live in a culture right now where the good old days, it feels like a long time ago and everything was just kind of normal. And now we look at it and we think, man, where are the good old days? Where did it all go? We can fall into a trap of thinking it was always better before. But listen to this. We must realize this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Why do we rejoice in this day? Because this day is going good? No. We rejoice because why? Because it's the day that He made. He's in control of your day. Whether you like it or not, His Day, the day that you're having is the day given by the Lord. And he doesn't say, oh, if it's a good day, rejoice in the Lord. If it's a bad day, yeah, well, you know, stay home, keep your, whatever. You know, no, he says, every day, this is the day that the Lord has made. Rejoice and be glad in it. And finally, he says, adversity produces wisdom and protects us at the end of verse 12. Wisdom that comes from adversity protects us. So prosperity is not necessarily good or indication of good, and adversity is not necessarily an indication of bad. But listen, this is so important to understand. God has determined both. Look what he says here. Consider God's work. Verse 13, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? He's the God of the straight, and he's the God of the crooked. And he says in verse 14, the last half, he says, and who can figure it out? You see that theme a lot. You see Solomon saying this a lot throughout. Who? Who can figure it out? God makes it crooked? Yep, he does. Can you make it straight? We certainly do try, don't we? We run ourselves ragged trying to make things work out. We run ourselves ragged trying to control our lives. And certainly there's nothing wrong with trying to better your lot in life or to improve your situation. No one is telling you not to remodel the bathroom or the kitchen. We're just saying what God, what is happening is God. It comes from the hand of God. Thomas Boston was a 16th century pastor. Steve Shank once uh, recommended this book to me called The Crook in the Lot. It's based on verse 13. Thomas Boston was an old Puritan pastor. He lost six of his children early in their lives. 
He understood the pain of sadness and loss. Beyond it all, he understood the sovereignty of God who was able to turn uh, turn in, and he was able to turn into God, not away from him. He trusted God, but there was a clear crook, if you could say it, in his lot. There are crooked things, those things that are not the way we would like or want, but we realize we can't straighten them out. Sometimes they're just not straighten outable. Have you had those situations in your life? I can remember the situations in my life. Some that to this day, situations that were very costly for me, and I did, I thought I did everything right. I thought I had asked the right questions. I had sought counsel. I had gone through all the things, and yet it turned out so bad it was, it was very costly. And to this day, I'll look at those things, and I'll say, God, what, what were you doing? Well, I can, I can answer the question. I can say, yes, God was building character, and to this day, every time it comes up, I have to use it to build character, build something in my own heart. But you know what? I still look back and I go, I, I don't get it, Lord, why that had to happen that way. God makes both prosperity and adversity. Verse 14, the preacher's bringing this profound truth. God has made them both. We must have the attitude of bowing our hearts and our heads to a sovereign God. If he wants you to know why it's crooked, he'll tell you. If he doesn't, you trust. You simply accept the fact that you may never know. And I am convinced that on the day of our death, we get there in heaven before God, you know, you're thinking to yourself, I think this all the time, when I get there, I'm going to understand it all. And you know what? I've come to the conclusion that I don't know if I'm going to get all my answers when I die because I think I'm going to look at Jesus. <laughs> I'm going to look at the answer, and the rest of the answers are no longer to be significant to me because of what he has done. He's made them both. It's from his hand. Is it crooked? God made it that way. The Bible affirms God's sovereignty over all the crooked things. If you're in a time of adversity, remember, God made them both. So humble yourself like Hezekiah. Job probably said it best when his wife told him to curse God and die. He said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive from God and uh, receive good from God? And not receive evil? An incredible statement. We're willing to receive good, but are we willing to receive evil? Difficult things? In verse 14, the preacher says this. Consider. Consider what God has done. Stop. Think. Prosperity. Adversity. That's what Job did. He stopped and considered. God had a purpose. His purpose is always drawing us closer to Him. So what's the crook in your lot today? What is it that tempts you to turn from rather than to God? Is it lost wealth? Is it physical limitations? Is it disease? Is it an accident or a mishap that left you changed for life? Is it depression or discouragement or despair that seems impenetrable at times? Is it parents that didn't love you or parents that even abused you? 
loss of a loved one, life situations that just didn't turn out the way you planned. All of these things come from the Lord. And He wants to use them in our lives. Don't try to edit your life. Listen, and I would add, <laughs> I would want to say that, that don't waste your sorrow. Make sure that God can use it for good in your life. We live in a world where we can edit things. You know what I mean? The backspace. Aren't you glad for that? Do you remember having to put that white out little strip in the typewriter and, and try to block out? You remember the Well, most of you don't. <laughs> but some of you I see nodding your heads like, oh, yeah, I remember having to do that. Man, it was, it, it was almost impossible to correct anything or, uh, or, or make an edit to something. And yet now all you do is you hit backspace or you just finger up there, you get your little icon up on edit and you put it down to cut and you can just cut it. You can even move it to a different part of the space. You can do whatever you want. And that's the way I think we sometimes face life. Oh, I'll just edit it. I'll just somehow work it out and make it better. This doesn't mean we need to think, we shouldn't think that everything's easy. We find in God's world we can't edit what God has done. Doesn't mean we don't try to improve or grow, but we're learning. We're letting that growth come in us for His glory. We receive it with joy. We trust. We respond like Hezekiah. We become conformed to the image of Christ like we talked a few weeks ago about. Life with this attitude is one of joy. When you have a, 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 an awareness that this is God at work, I might as well get over it and enjoy what he's doing in my life right now. Enjoy it in a sense of mourning maybe, but I'm enjoying it because mourning brings gladness, even, especially when it's sorrowful. Prosperity is a gift from God needs to be enjoyed without grasping. Adversity is a gift from God and in its own way is to be enjoyed. Knowing this, as Philippians 2 said, Paul said, God is at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. In the world, and even some parts of the church, sadly, it comes across as prosperity equals good, adversity equals bad. If you're doing, if things are going wrong, must be something wrong with you. Nope. The preacher says, nope, God brings adversity. We can fail to see God's hand in both of those tests. The one who fears God, he says at the end, verse 18, both come through these tests by God's grace. That's his final advice here. The one who fears God shall come out of both of them. Whether prosperity or adversity, God will bring you through both. You need God's grace for both so that God's image, Christ's image, is formed in you. God doesn't want to straighten our situation out. God wants to straighten us out. That's what he's after. Now our hope, our hope is in the most crooked thing that ever happened in history. Think about this. It doesn't get more crooked than the cross. Jesus, the perfect son of God, sinless, pure, endured, and faced the most horrifying thing in the history of the world for us in our behalf 
humbly surrendering to God's perfect plan when he went to the cross. Would you ever want to change that? Would you ever want to change that? And yet, it was the worst thing in history on one hand that ever happened. It was the most crooked thing. And yet God was using it for you in 2020 to set you free. Aren't you glad he submitted to the crook in his lot? We get eternal salvation because of that. God uses something so crooked to bring about the greatest good in your life. If I could have the worship team come. Whatever God brings into your life, Allow it to humble you. See your heart. When these times of adversity come, when times of prosperity come, sit down and consider, folks, why is God allowing prosperity in my life? So that I can be a blessing. So that I could be used of God in a unique way. A unique way that if I didn't have this, I couldn't be used. Is he bringing adversity into your life? He's using it for his glory in a unique way. I watched a video uh, of Joni Erickson Tata, Johnny Erickson Tata speaking. And it was just, on one level, it was heartbreaking. This is the girl that, when she was 16 years old in 1969, I think it was, dove into a lake, broke her neck, crushed her spine, was a quadriplegic, is the rest of her entire life. She said, wisdom in trusting God doesn't make sense. She said this, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Do you believe that? God permits what he hates. Does he hate sickness? Oh, yeah, we can go through the Bible and we can, we can prove that God hates sin, God hates sickness, God hates death, all of these things. But they're a part of our life. But God uses those things to accomplish what he loves. The character, she said, the character of Christ was far more important than walking. Her testimony, she said, suffering is the textbook that teaches you who you really are. God brings both. God brings prosperity God brings adversity. When it's all said and done, the greatest evil that ever came upon the world was not a holocaust or genocides in Africa or natural disasters or the black plague or the COVID plague. The greatest evil that ever happened was when the religious leaders of the day, the so-called righteous, the so-called prosperous of their time, put the most perfect man who ever lived to death on a cross. But in so doing, that perfect man became the very essence of, of sin so that on our behalf so that we might be free to live our lives free from the power of sin free to glorify God no matter whether he brings prosperity or adversity he uses it all to change us to change you to change me and we can simply humble ourselves like Jesus did in submitting to the cross Humble ourselves. Whatever situation you find yourself in, receive it, consider.
God has made them both. Let's pray. Father, we, we need you today. We need your grace. We need to understand our lives. We need to understand how you work in our lives and what you're doing. And we confess we don't always understand that. We need you to come. Lord, tonight, give us clarity. Help us to be able to look at our lives like Solomon did and see that prosperity and adversity, they both come from your hand. You have made them both. Oh God, use it for your glory in our lives. Cause our lives to bring you glory. In Jesus' name.